Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Good morning. My name is Jay Rubenstein, and I am director of USC Dornsife Center for the Pre-Modern World. I'd like to welcome you to our two-day symposium, Conspiracies Then and Now. One of the goals of the center I direct is to look into the distant past as a way to try to understand what's going on in our modern world, to try to see it in a new light. And as such, I'm delighted to be able to partner with the Center for the Political Future to bring you this event. On behalf of both centers, I would also like to thank the Rancho Mirage Writers Festival, without whom this event would not have been possible in its current form. Today, we are going to talk about conspiracies and conspiracy theories in the Middle Ages and the modern world. As a historian, I've learned that when you put two ideas together, two similar and similarly fascinating ideas, and look at them really closely, you see a lot more than if you just focus on one thing. And for me, the moment when I thought of putting these two things together, the crystallizing moment came when I started reading some of the literature produced by the conspirators of the moment, which is to say the QAnon movement. A lot of the intellectual moves they were making as such could have been taken straight out of the medieval playbook, whether it was anti-Semitism, a belief in bizarre blood and sex rituals, secret coded communications, or the fevered embrace of apocalyptic fantasies. And then January 6th happened, and this event seemed not only possible, but essential, even urgent. Before we begin, though, let me ask a basic question to set the tone. What's the difference between conspiracies and conspiracy theories? A recent book defines a conspiracy, and I'm reading here, as a small group of powerful individuals who act in secret for their own benefit against the common good in a way that undermines rules, norms, or institutions. It's a perfectly fine definition as far as it goes, but I think already we have to make a couple of revisions. One is conspiracies don't have to be small, as we saw on January 6th, and they don't necessarily need to be composed entirely of the powerful. Perhaps people who adhere to conspiracies are being manipulated by the powerful, but that's a question for our panelists to deal with. A conspiracy theory is something different. It is, and again, I'm reading, an explanation of past, present, or future events that cites as the cause of these events a conspiracy. Some conspiracies are real, and some conspiracy theories turn out to be true. In an ideal world, there would be a recognized arbiter of knowledge who could say, yes, this was a real conspiracy, and then we could move from the notion of conspiracy into that of fact. But what happens when, according to conspiracy theories, the arbiters of knowledge are themselves part of the plot? Or perhaps worse still, what happens when the arbiters of information are themselves the ones promoting the conspiracy theory. We'll see examples of both possibilities today, I suspect. Lurking in the background to these discussions will be a common set of questions. Do conspiracy theorists believe their conspiracies? How do conspiracy theories, particularly the outrageous and seemingly nonsensical ones, spread? What can we do to tamp down the fires of conspiratorial thought? We probably won't settle on any solutions during the next two days, but I hope we get closer to some good starting points. Now, let me turn the program over to my colleague, Kami Akavan, who will present our first panel. Kami. Oh, well, thank you for that, Jay. And thanks, everybody, for joining us. It's the day after St. Patrick's Day. I appreciate you being up early if you're on the West Coast uh, to join us today. 
Uh, you'll note that I have 17 items in my background here as my tribute to Q. We're signaling our followers here. Uh, I wanted to thank everyone for joining us. Uh, this first panel is going to be really interesting. It's the broadest look. All five panels will be fascinating, but this one is the broadest look. So uh, let's get right into it. The panelists that have joined us today are all esteemed folks. I'll be briefly introducing them, and then we'll start getting into questions. First, I want to mention who I am. So uh, my name is uh, Kami Akavan. I'm the executive director of the USC Center for the Political Future. And with me today, uh, we have Dallas Dennery. Dallas is a professor of history at Bowdoin College in Maine. Uh, he's an intellectual and religious historian with an interest in medieval and early modern European history. His forthcoming book, Bad History, considers what egregiously bad histories can teach us about the nature and purpose of history. We're also joined by another historian of great renown, Elizabeth A.R. Brown. Elizabeth Brown is a professor emerita of history at Brooklyn College and the Graduate Center at City University of New York. She's a scholar and published author known primarily for her writings on feudalism. In 2009, Elizabeth Brown was selected as the second vice president of the Medieval Academy of America, and in 2010, served as its president. On the modern side, we're joined by Sarah Gorman. Uh, Sarah's the co-founder of Critica Science, a community committed to critical thinking and combating science denial. Her best-selling book, Denying to the Grave, Why We Ignore the Facts That Will Save Us, examines the psychology of healthcare decision-making and theorizes about public perception of risk. Uh, she's currently the Director of Research and Knowledge Dissemination at the Jed Foundation, a nonprofit that protects emotional health and prevents suicide for teens and young adults. Lastly, on the modernist side, we have uh, Norbert Schwartz, colleague of mine at USC. Norbert is a provost professor of psychology and a Marshall professor of marketing at USC. He's the co-founder of the USC Dornsife Mind and Society Center, which addresses the interface of individuals and society by investigating how people think about societal issues and how societal context shapes individuals' thoughts and actions. He's an expert in consumer judgment and decision-making. Folks, you're in for a treat today with our very esteemed panel, uh, so let's get right into it. My first question is one that is going to be targeted to, to Sarah. And Sarah, I'd like to know, like Dallas brought up, what is a conspiracy theory? What is it? So we had a little bit of a definition already, but it's basically a, a belief that a usually powerful group of people is sort of plotting to create a circumstance or event. And usually it's, as I said, political um, or it can be in many cases, especially in the U.S., sort of a, a powerful company or, or um, industry that's that's thought to be in the lead for this. And I think what's very important to understand here about the definition of conspiracy theories is, is this idea that there's usually a simpler explanation for what's going on. And so usually these tend to be very complex, sort of layered ideas where a simpler explanation is available. So just recognizing that, you know, that, that sort of level of fabrication is important. I appreciate that. Norbert, I know your view is similar, but maybe you could add some more uh, layers to this definition. I agree. I would add one more thing. It's kind of impossible to falsify. 
Uh, so it's very difficult to actually find evidence that would contradict the conspiracy theory because you just add another layer that wraps the new thing into the story. And if there is nothing to support it, if it's very hard to find facts that support the conspiracy theory, then that too can be evidence of how good the conspirators are, right? I mean, the evil guys are so wonderful, you can't even trace them and find evidence for what they're, for what they're doing. So it's very, very difficult uh, to really engage at a substantive level in a way that could convince somebody who holds a conspiracy theory that that theory does, does not apply. That's an interesting point about how it can't be disproven, uh, and that in itself adds power to the the conspiracy theory itself. Uh, and uh, for uh, for Dallas and uh, and Elizabeth, my question for you is similar on the definition side. Are there things you look back in history that can add nuance to the definition what of what a conspiracy theory or conspiracy even is? Certainly, in the 14th century, you didn't need to have powerful people mentioned. It was better to have people who were not easily identified, which let the theory bloom and blossom. And one of the things back then was that you could get people to act on the conspiracy theory. When there was a conspiracy, a brooded conspiracy in 1321, that the Jews and the lepers were poisoning the wells of France, people went after them. There wasn't any evidence that the wells had been poisoned. It was a time of famine, however. It was a time of political, there were political problems going on, and it was like hay that caught fire. Right, so the, the timeliness of it matters a lot. Dallas, anything you want to add to the, to the definition side of this? Not to the, the definition side, but I, I guess the other thing I would, I would stress is to, to ask what different conspiracy theories are uh, attempting to accomplish uh, because sometimes it might be to bring down some particular person or to achieve some short-term goal but it could it could be for all sorts of other reasons so I think mm-hmm. it's always worth asking sort of what is what is the purpose what's the, what's the goal it's such an important point about what the purpose of it is and maybe we can take a look at a few specific ones and and one that's I learned about from both of you uh, really was about the of Philip the Fair. And I'm, I'm wondering, Dr. Brown, if you can tell us that conspiracy. Uh, and then uh, after we learn about it, I'm hoping that uh, in orbit Serge else, we can kind of see, are there any modern parallels to that, to that story? Does that sound familiar? So Dr. Brown, uh, please uh, educate us. What was that conspiracy? I have a list here of all the conspiracies that were suspected, invented, actual conspiracies during the reign of Philip the Fair. And that and that's from 1285 to 1314 in France. And for a very wonderful summary of them, Sean Field's book called Courting Sanctity is a great guide. It was a time in which there were conspiracies. The king was prepared to believe in conspiracies because of experiences he had had with conspiracies when he was a boy between the ages of six and ten. There were rumors of his stepmother poisoning two of his brothers who died, in fact died. There were rumors of of his father being a sodomite. There was the very sudden hanging 
of his father's chief minister without any explanation or trial. This is the, a fertile ground for the development of an individual who sees conspiracies everywhere. And it's fed when there are, in fact, conspiracies. One of the chief ones that we're going to have a whole session on, which will be fascinating with Sean Field and Julian Terry, is uh, the, the case of the Knights Templars. And this, this was a conspiracy against the Templars, a very powerful military order, very wealthy, suspected because of their secret activities, a real Don Bra Dan Brown scenario. And the government had been felt affair and his ministers had been keeping books on the Templars. They were jealous of the wealth. Nobody was going after them seriously until Guillaume de Nogaret, who was the chief minister of Philip the Fair, for his own purposes. And it's hard for us to understand, most of us, his purpose. He was excommunicate because he had gone out, gone out of his way to attack Boniface VIII, who was a pope, the pope. And because of this attack, and, and he was conspiring with Italians who helped him uh, launch the attack on Boniface. Because of that, he was excommunicated and he was desperate to have his, ab to be absolved of the excommunication. And he drafted his own, he himself drafted his bull of absolution, which the Pope wouldn't go along with. And in order to persuade the Pope, he moved against the Templars. I think prepared to pull back if he was absolved. But it was this, it, it went on and on for four years until finally he got his absolution. Many of the same terms he'd asked for in 1307 were granted in 1311. But at the, at the end, the Templars were so sullied, their reputation was so uh, tarnished that the order was dissolved. And the money was, some of it was taken by Philip the Fair. A lot of it went to the Knights Hospitallers and the order was gone. In the course of this, he invented a conspiracy. Nogahe invented a conspiracy. The two Templars were trying to, plotting to kill the King of France. That was never publicized, but they were willing to invent conspiracy theories and charges to get their own and from what I'm hearing, Dr. Brown, it sounds like we have a, a powerful ruler who's had a life filled with some tragedy, uh, some of it unexplainable. Uh, and here is a very charismatic person whispering in his ear, telling him, you know what caused these bad things? X, Y, Z. And Philip the Fair believes it. We don't know if the Nogare believed it or if he was using it for his own purposes to achieve these ends you described. But he got Philip to believe it. And I'm hearing this, an advisor whispering to a powerful leader, conspiratorial thinking. Does any of this sound familiar? Is there a modern connection here? <laughs> Wonderfully summarized. Wonderfully summarized. I think you can be pretty sure he didn't believe it all because he kept making up charges. Unless 
But on the other hand, Cammy, he did think that God was guiding him. And maybe God gave him progressive revelation of these crimes that he'd come up with, new charges. It's like QAnon. There's always more. Well, that's that's what I find so fascinating about that particular theory and its parallels in the modern era. And I'm wondering, uh, uh, Dr. Schwartz and Dr. Gorman, if, if you can talk about uh, about those parallels. Did anything that uh, Dr. Brown just described, did it make you think, oh, I'm hearing Steve Bannon. I'm hearing uh, I'm hearing President Trump. I'm hearing you know, modern leaders and, and their their conspirators and their influencers. Uh, does that trigger any comparisons to the modern for you? Well, I, I, I think the parallels are quite apparent in many ways. I mean, many conspiracy theories that run for a long time uh, serve someone, uh, other than the general people who believe the conspiracy. And, uh, of course, powerful rulers do not necessarily explicitly endorse a conspiracy, but they signal that they're not opposed, right? I mean, just like you, Kami, they have 17 objects in the background to uh, signal their uh, fealty to Q. And, of course, it's deniable because you can say, well, I mean, what does it mean? I mean, there were 17 flags on the stage with Trump, right? Uh, so um, that's a kind of thing. And I think it will be fascinating to watch uh, what I think is a conspiracy theory in early development, uh, which will be how people account uh, for Trump's loss in the 2020 election. And you could see right after the elections that uh, most Republican officials in the states rejected the claims that the election in their state was irregular. All the courts rejected it. And by now, very few uh, Republican officials are backing that. Most Republican officials became very quiet, do not like the quotes and the videos where they said right afterwards, no, no, the election was clean, and are very quiet and uh, use the doubts that were spread, use the doubts as a cover uh, for uh, a large wave of uh, intended uh, laws that will restrict access to voting. That is one of the things where Conspiracy theories from Q as an extreme form to more modest things about the irregularities of the election serve a purpose. And people who know better and said otherwise, not that long ago, are getting reasonably quiet because actually it's kind of helpful when at least some of the population buys into that. And I think we will see a a, a lot of those dynamics and it's not atypical. So typically, I don't think that the rulers themselves, as in as in Peggy's case, uh, that the rulers themselves are the drivers and inventors of the conspiracy, uh, but certainly um, groups close to them uh, are driving it, and many rulers are pleased to take advantage of it, at least in as long as they can keep that support deniable. Right, and, and I, I appreciate that perspective very much, and I wonder for, for you, uh, sir, if that, if that resonates as well, sort of this, there's a path to plausible deniability that this bad outcome was not my fault or my follower's fault. It was the result of some external thing, force that happened to us 
Uh, does that sound familiar from, from your work in studying conspiracies? Definitely. I mean, I think you'll find that a lot of people who subscribe to conspiratorial beliefs may have experienced in the health and science denial world may have experienced some kind of damage to them or their loved one's health. And they're looking for some explanation that isn't their responsibility. So that definitely resonates. And I would pull out two other things. There were a lot of parallels with modern conspiracy theories and, and what Dr. Brown shared, but uh, I would would pull out two other things. One is the role of wealth. So I think it goes without saying that conspiracy theories are often targeted at people who have a lot of wealth because there's a lot of jealousy, et cetera. But something that's not often commented on is that people who propagate conspiracy theories, so usually they're, they're sort of a charismatic leader at the, at the head of the conspiracy theory when that, one, when that does exist, um, it often stands to gain financially from the spread of the conspiracy theory. So the example I have from my world, um, the best example is Andrew Wakefield, who you know, has spread the belief that the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine causes autism. But more than that, that the pharmaceutical companies are hiding data and the CDC is hiding data about this um, and and trying to trick everyone into getting sick. And he has his own institute in Texas, I believe, where he uh, performs supposed treatments on children who have been vaccinated to remove the quote unquote toxins from their bodies. So he makes a lot of money off of that. Um, and so there, there is this kind of give and take with the going after the wealthy people, but then, you know, having a leader who stands to gain. And the other thing I wanted to point out was that um, oftentimes, again, this sort of charismatic leader person is someone who's kind of fallen from grace. Um, so looking again to um, Andrew Wakefield, he uh, lost his medical license after he published this erroneous study. And it was really after that that he started to to more and more become this public advocate for this idea that the vaccines cause autism. And he emphasizes when he speaks to people that he's on the fringes, he's not part of the establishment, he's been shunned, et cetera. So that is actually uh, an important feature and something that is part of the charismatic leader's persona as well. It's such an interesting point that, that you made, Dr. Gorm, because it sounds like people, uh, they double down on their wrong beliefs. Uh, yeah. Right. And does does Dr. Wakefield actually believe uh, that he's curing people or is he just a, a simple profiteer uh, who's making this up and convincing other people uh, to that point? There's another great example I wanted to, us to talk about that I learned about from uh, our esteemed colleague here, Dallas Henry. And Dallas, I'm wondering if you can tell us the, the story of uh, Hardwin um, and Hardwin, Hardwin and uh, and maybe we can establish some modern parallels to his story as well, because it's fascinating. So the the conspiracy theory I've, I've worked on most comes from a Jesuit intellectual in the decades right around 1700, very respected uh, for his scholarship named Jean Hardouin. And he essentially argued that almost every book written before the year 1400 uh, was a forgery uh, composed by this cabal of atheistic Benedictine monks who want to destroy the Catholic Church. So like, you know, Dante is a forgery, Augustine is a forgery, Virgil is, everything is a forgery, Aristotle, Plato, it was all made up. Um, and so then the question you have to ask, you know, first of all, like, why is he promoting this, this theory? And what becomes clear really quickly is in the, you know, at 1700, the Catholic Church is being, it's all part of the Reformation. The Catholic Church is being attacked by Protestant critics and even sort of radical Catholics um, about how the current 
Catholic Church of the time has drifted far from the early Christian message, that in fact, the church is being charged with being heretical, antichrist, right? And Hardouin recognizes that the tradition of writings within the Catholic Church actually prove his critics' points. And so his only solution is to say, well, that's not even evidence. It's all been forged. None of that is real. It was all part of a plot. And, and I mean, and he writes voluminously about this. Um, but what I find interesting is you, you want to ask, why did he do this? Like, what, what's the value in it? And it strikes me the value in it is when you think, what is history for? Well, history supplies a narrative. And that narrative authorizes and justifies your current social understanding of the world. In this case, the 17th century Catholic Church. And so he's promoting this theory as a means of promoting the truth of the church that he doesn't have any doubts about. And so effectively, he says, the church as it exists in 1700 is for all intents and purposes identical with the church that existed in the year 100. So it's about giving authority to a narrative that holds a community together. And so if you want to look at modern parallels, to me, even though it's a conspiracy theory, it has a lot in common with things like Younger's creationism today, where a sort of rewriting of history is being offered to allegedly maintain a, a, a Christian community based on a literal interpretation of scripture, or even sort of more radically, it's like Eric von Donneken's ancient astronaut thesis, right? He, he, he thought human beings were the product of aliens having sex with pre-human hominids or genetic manipulation. But, but the point for von Donneken ultimately was he looked at a fractured world fighting problems and thought we need a new narrative that brings us together as a community. And so in all these cases, in these kinds of cases, it strikes me as they're about narratives needing to be offered at a time where communities seem to be fracturing. It's such a great example, and the, and I'm, I want to transition those that example to the modern era and just bring up a couple of points. So you mentioned the young Earth creationists, and the theory is that the Earth is about six thousand five hundred years old ish, right? And and we say, well, what about the dinosaurs? Well. You can't trust carbon dating. You can't trust. Well, what about these other, you know, ancient uh, proofs of of uh, human existence or or the age of the planet? Well, you can't trust. So it goes to your point about you can't trust. You can't trust uh, the the evidence. And you mentioned that Hardwan said all of these books were forgeries, and I just hear fake news. That's the term that pops into my head. You can't trust what was written before. It's fake news. Uh, and, and I wonder uh, for, for you, Norbert, and for you, sir, does, do, you, do you hear those things? Do you hear modern parallels with the Hardawan story uh, and the, the non-believability of any disconfirming, disproving evidence? I think it goes back to what uh, Norbert said at the beginning about how you can't falsify it. Um, that makes it fundamentally unscientific um, and therefore di very difficult to work with. And I think one thing that I have often pointed out to people about how do you spot sort of anti-science theories and um, it's that the goalposts are constantly changing. So not only do these people always have a response to ev everything you could possibly bring up, um, but if they do find out, you know, for example, oh, okay, we can't 
Um, we can't talk about uh, some preservative and vaccines causing uh, autism because the preservative was taken out, um, you know, 10 years ago. Then they'll just move on to something else. Or, oh, if, if, there's, if they finally accept that maybe it's not causing autism, they'll move on to a different illness. So that idea that it's just constantly shifting um, really goes to that point where it's, it's serving some broader emotional, psychological, social purpose because the content is, is just in flux. So I think that's really fundamental to conspiracy theories, actually. Cammy, can I throw a question in? How many people believed, followed Hadwa? How Do we have any idea how many people followed these people who made up these ideas? One, one of the things that's so interesting is the death of the theory, when it disappears. I was so heartened to see the article of the New Yorker yesterday, Zianon, making fun of QAnon. I think that if we can laugh at them or snicker a little bit, it's the beginning of the end for them. But you have to know how big your audience is. It would, it's a hell. I mean, not... I, I would say not a lot of people believed Hardwass theory in its full breadth, um, but there were people who who would accept parts of it um, or accepted the sort of direction of it. And, it. and it goes to this this question: like, what makes something true? Right? If if you have a set of values that you hold up as sort of defining your world and how you evaluate what you are and how you make sense of things then a history can be true that reaffirms the values that you sort of metaphysically or antecedently already accept, right? So, you know, the, the proof issue is, is a complicated one because as historians, we think history is always about, well, let's get the story straight. But, you know, history is also about, you know, telling stories um, and telling that story in a way that lets people know who they are. And once you start telling stories, you're going to run into trouble excluding or including different kinds of facts. But, you know, one of the things about the Templars, one of the reasons the Templars weren't totally destroyed was that Philip the Fair got confirmatory evidence from the Templars by having them tortured, and they would say anything. When they started torturing Templars in other countries, or looking into it, they got no corroborating evidence. So Philip the Fair had no outside push to confirm what he was charging. Right. I mean, I, I'll, I'll stop on the Hardwan theory, but I will just point out Hardwan thought he had evidence everywhere. He thought Dante was a fraud, and you could tell, because if you read it, you could tell it stinks. <laughs> like, the Divine Comedy is simply no good. It's obvious. Um, <laughs> So you can pretend there's evidence, but um, I, I would like to hear what you, what, what Norbert and, and Sarah, though, think about sort of pre-existing values determining what people accept is true. I mean, that... Well, I mean, there's a, there's a whole range of, of uh, findings that basically support that what makes you likely to accept a conspiracy theory is that things aren't going that well for you and that your 
your life isn't quite under your own control you feel you feel a little bit on the losing side of developments and you wonder how that can happen to you and you're getting an explanation for that that can give you some sense of uh, understanding the world in which you live uh, and uh, that the thing is not falsifiable is an advantage from that perspective right it gives you some certainty that this makes sense uh, people attack it and and all the attacks kind of evaporate because you can always pull out another another layer uh, so that's uh, part of that moreover there's a social function that conspiracy theorists probably now more than in the Middle Ages, I, I, I wonder about that, you, you, you may know something about that, that conspiracy theorists can easily form a social network. So when you look at current studies of QAnon, it's full of uh, social, mutual social support on social media websites. So you can uh, post something, and when you post a claim, other people come in and say how wonderful that is, and what deep insights you have, and that the stupid sheep out there don't get it. So you get a lot of confirmation, emotional support, cognitive support, and a sense that you actually understand how things work, which counteracts uh, what are often more existential threats, so that you may be on the losing side of social change. I appreciate that, Norbert. And let me uh, ask, there's two questions from the audience, and I think your point just addressed them, but let me pose the questions uh, so that, uh, sir, if you can el elaborate on these related points. One is from Michael Rogers. He says, why do people buy into such theories when evidence clearly shows the fallacies of them? Uh, and a related question is from, uh, from Maxine Connolly Panagopoulos, who says, you mentioned these theories are picked up by a fractured society. And what do the beliefs do for the individual who believes them? Yeah, so I do want to point out, I agree with everything Norbert just said, and I, I do want to point out that there is a piece of all of us that's very vulnerable to conspiracy theories, and that's the piece of us that hates uncertainty, the piece of us that hates to hear there is no explanation. Um, it's just the way it is. And, you know, it comes into play constantly in, in health and science because there's so many things happening um, with people's health uh, on the population level, on the individual level, that we just don't know why. Um, and so obviously a good example of this is, is autism. We don't know what causes it, and we don't know why the rates have gone up in the past years, and we just don't really have much to offer people. Um, so I would say that I think what makes the difference between people who you know end up falling for them and don't is how sort of psychologically vulnerable they are, how isolated they are, um, these are things that kind of bear out in the literature as as being, um, you know, good determinants of how prone someone is to fall for these things. And I think that the social aspect is really important. Um, it's especially important now um, because you can form social. It's very easy to form the social network online, um, and it doesn't take much to to have sort of the group psychology kick in. Um, so I think that that might be why you know we see a lot of these things, and especially during coronavirus with all of the general uncertainty going on and job loss and increased isolation, I, you know, I think it, it sort of makes sense in a way that, that people would turn to some of these beliefs. Absolutely. It's, it's so uh, interesting because part of it is just the power of storytelling. Uh, and, and I wonder from all of your perspectives, if you can maybe uh, talk about what a narrative can do where it can be an explainer. And 
listen, if you, you meet someone and they tell you a, a story, you may remember the story and forget all the facts in it. You forget the numbers, you forget the places, you forget the names, but you remember the story, you remember how it made you feel. Uh, and we as, as human beings are, are wired for narrative. Uh, and I wonder if, if you have uh, believe that somewhere deep in human psychology, this vulnerability that you described is that that is just part of being human? Is is that how you would see it? Is that why there's this conspiracy theories then and now, and in the future we will always have them? If I I think Norbert's point was terribly important. The the networking part of conspiracy theories. You believe a story that other people believe, and it ties you to them, and it gives you a network. Cons. Spiratio means to breathe together. It is at, at, at its heart an alliance of more than, it's, it's an alliance of people and it can be for good or bad. And in the ancient world, conspiratio could mean a good thing or a bad thing. And it became, it had, the pejorative meaning became attached in the Middle Ages. But a lot of people who were engaged in true conspiracies were networking. And those who, who, who adopt a conspiracy theory are gaining strength from their association with people. And that was as true in the Middle Ages as it is today. And the fact that there are real conspiracies also means that you know, not every claim about a conspiracy is necessarily false. Exactly. I mean, that, that's also important to keep in mind. I mean, you can always point to actual conspiracies. I wanted to bring up a question from uh, Thomas Warren, who uh, was saying, thinking about how historical examples might help us to be predictive on the issue, uh, to what extent might there be identifiable characteristics which make or have made certain institutions or people more susceptible uh, to the influence of conspiracy theories than others? And I guess if, if for me, in thinking about that question, what makes a, an individual particularly vulnerable? It probably depends on the theory. Uh, and, and sir, I remember in, in your book, you talked about uh, the, the anti-vaxxers, right? And uh, some of the most vigilant uh, anti-vaccination uh, champions were highly educated, left-leaning moms in Marin County, you know, Northern California. Right. So it, it was not reflective of their educational level or their political leaning. Uh, and I, I found that so interesting. And and uh, and at the same time, uh, you talk about this uh, social networks uh, and uh, and you're talking about the flat earthers and how f people who believed in flat earth in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, they seemed like a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of the population. But as social networks developed, these people found each other and they were able to amplify each other's uh, theories. And now there's more flat earthers than we had decades ago, right? So there's something about the power of the social network and something uh, about the your individual psychology that makes these certain theories more believable than others. Uh, and, I, and I wonder, uh, uh, Dr. Gormer, if you can kind of uh, speak to those points. I think the, the part of the book where I talk about the anti-vaxxers does have to do with the social network because... Um, I talked about how um, a lot of them, you know, were, were parents, usually mothers with children who had autism um, and sometimes other neurodevelopmental um, disorders. And I talked about how isolating it can be, it really is, um, to, to be a mother of a, a child with a developmental disability. Um, most of your friends who have children, their children are 
developing very differently and your kid might not be able to play with their kids and etc you know there's a lot of it's hard to find community so one of the things that this anti-vaxxer community did was immediately help people find each other and that is a good thing um unfortunately it was tied to this belief and so so the social aspect is very important because once they sort of found each other through this belief obviously you don't want to let go of that um but the other thing is um you know any situation where somebody has a big event or a big circumstance in their life that they can't explain why it happened to them and they want an explanation, that's when conspiracy theories are fertile. And that can be something like having a kid with autism, but it could also be something like losing your job in the midst of an economic downturn. And you just, why did this happen to me? And then lo and behold, there's a conspiracy theory about the Democrats who created this circumstance for you. And that sounds very appealing all of a sudden. So just our, our, we're very uncomfortable, very, very uncomfortable with, with just saying, you know, there's not really a clear answer or there's lots of factors. You know, people don't like that, especially if it's a, you know, somewhat of a traumatic or, or very um, disruptive event. So it sounds like you're saying people will believe what they want to believe and Facts be damned. Maybe that's too strong. Facts be damned. But the facts don't matter as much as the desire to want to believe the theory and the motivated reasoning, confirmation bias. These are things, Dr. Schwartz, that you know so well. Do you think that's part of this conspiratorial belief? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we all do that, right? I mean, we all are more likely to look for information that confirms our beliefs. And that information will easily comes to mind. And our own social environment is more likely to support our beliefs and to contradict our beliefs because usually we live in a relatively homogenous network and, and environment. So uh, that all contributes to that. Beyond that, it turns out that people who are likely to discover patterns in a lot of stuff are also more likely to endorse conspiracy theories. So it's not a very big factor, but it is another one of these illustrative things. So if you're likely, for example, to see faces in the clouds, uh, you're also more likely to endorse conspiracy theories. If you're likely to, to hold a lot of metaphysical beliefs, conspiracy theories are more likely to sink to you. Uh, so there are some of those uh, uh, pieces as well, but the big ones, as Sarah said, and as we all know, said multiple times, the big ones are some kind of an existential threat of uncertainty in your situation, some kind of social isolation uh, that allows, that motivates you to make sense of what's happening in the world and a sense for which you find social support. Those are Big variables, and I think that may explain why conspiracy theories are becoming more influential because it's easier now to get that second piece. So as long as you were sitting somewhere and you held this crazy belief and not too many people agreed with you and you couldn't easily find them, uh, that belief was probably less powerful than in a situation where you can easily find others who share that and to also tell you how superior you and these others are, because uh, most people are just sheep who don't get it. And, and social media have helped us be in that situation. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's a not a modern phenomenon. This is a human phenomenon. Uh, and this, the social could be 
not Facebook from a thousand years ago. It could have been word of mouth. And and my uh, question kind of geared to, to to you, Dallas, when I'm thinking about modern conspiracies, I'm thinking about uh, Pizzagate, uh, where the, the gunman showed up to a pizza parlor convinced that uh, that Hillary Clinton was running a, a child sex operation out of that facility. I'm thinking about people who argue that uh, 9-11 was an inside job, uh, that we actually blew up the buildings, the plane didn't strike them, it was as the government did it, or that uh, Kennedy was was assassinated by a cabal of either mafia or uh, or, or it was the, the military-industrial complex. And, and we, we see them all throughout. When you hear these modern conspiracies, do you think, seen it? done it there was a hundred of them in the in the uh in the medieval period and and early uh modern european history well so first of all thank you for thinking of me when you think of pizzagate that's that's great um Um, i would say that this given what norbert and sarah are saying as well you can easily see the same sorts of reasons supporting why people in the past, accepted these sorts of conspiracy theories. Um, you know, question. I, I, this will probably be dealt with on another panel. But you know, there's a long-standing uh, conspiracy about the Jews and lepers uh, poisoning the wells uh, to cause the plague, and and on the theory that it's just people create conspiracy theories because they feel like they're on the losing end. It doesn't make any sense because. Jews and lepers had no power and Catholics had all the power. Um, But if you then add the event, you know, the equivalent of, well, probably worse than autism at the time, the Black Death, suddenly this incredibly unknown thing suddenly needs explanation. What do you do? You know, you go to you go to some group that you can pin it on. So the structure seems very similar. Peggy, I, I defer to all things medieval related Peggy. So she might. Well, the, but the lepers and Jews were, was a lot long before the what we know as the Black Death, twenty five years before more. But there were, were always plagues, and there was always illness, much more than I had ever realized. My antennae are now, as you can imagine, much more attuned to reports of plagues and and uh, evacuating. Uh, getting out of a city because there was illness there. But this was a time of famine. Uh, Bill Jordan has written a book uh, of taking off from earlier work on the economic hardships of this particular period of time, the early 14th century. It was a bad time, and it was a bad time for the West because of the power of of Islam. because of the failure of the West to be able to marshal forces against successfully against the uh, enemies outside. Uh, within, there was a lot of strife. France's supremacy was not as great as it was because Flanders was allying with England. It was a time of turmoil. And I think that is a time that... that uh, favors the development. I think we're the the number of theories today is is incredible. I I do, I don't have any record of the numerous imaginative conspiracies that are invented, but some of them that were invented were pretty outlandish. Absolutely. And 
and those were uh, great points you just made, Peggy. And, and uh, you know, sadly, we're approaching the end of our time here, folks, but we have a lot of good questions still from our audience. I want to get to those questions and get as many of them as we can. And also, as you're answering, keep in mind any kind of parting wisdom you would like to share with our audience, because a lot of us are thinking, how do we stop this crazy nonsense from spreading, right? What can be done, if anything, uh, to, to prevent this in others and in ourselves? And to that point, I want to ask this question from uh, Richard Flegel, who says, what about the desire to assign responsibility to causes other than ourselves or our own groups? How much of the desire to believe in conspiracies might be attributed to a desire to avoid guilt for a situation in which we find ourselves? Do you think that's part of it? What do you have to uh, think about that? This is open to anyone to respond. Yes, good part of a mix. I agree. I mean, that is part of the thing, right? I mean, I said earlier, well, what makes you highly vulnerable to conspiracy theories is that you're in some way on the losing side of social change uh, and that things happen in your lives that you don't quite understand. And those come with uh, the possibilities that you might be responsible for it. So something that allows you not to be responsible for it is certainly welcome. Yeah. And particularly at a time in the Middle Ages when you believe that God is controlling everything. An interesting point. And, and here's another one. I'm, I'm curious to see what you think. This one is from uh, Dalit uh, Brady. And Dalit asks, aren't concerned moms a large segment of QAnon as well? Uh, they seem to focus on the pedophilia angle. Do cults or conspiracies actively recruit women? Is there a gender element here, folks? What do you think? <laughs> I, I don't I don't think so. I think this is content specific. When you're talking about autism of kids and the moms are more likely to be uh uh not to to uh, to be interested in that. Uh but uh, on this uh, looking more generally on survey data for other conspiracy theories and beliefs about Kennedy's assassinations, the moon landing was fake and all those kinds of things. There is no clear gender pattern. Uh, so there are prominent conspiracy theories like the, the anti-vaccine and the measles uh, stuff that does have a gender pattern, but I think that's content-specific and, and not in general that women are more susceptible to conspiracy thinking. Thank you for those responses. And, and this question is perhaps geared more to our historians. Uh, it's from Mick West. He says, are there good examples of pre-industrial debunkers are critics of the conspiracy theories who are effective in countering the conspiracy theories of the past. What can we learn from them? I mentioned the, the fact that the other countries, other monarchies, could not get confirmatory evidence of the charges against the Templars that Philip the Fair brought, and that caused a lot of concern to Philip the Fair, needless to say, and obvious concern to the Pope who was responsible for it. And it, it seems to me that the, the cure for this is more education, more recognition of our tendency that Norbert talked about for to take the easy way out cognitively rather than the more difficult way out cognitively and to question our own beliefs. But isn't there the, I, I've read studies where, people wonder if, if you try to argue back, you can actually reconfirm the person you're arguing with in these cases. 
in the sense of like, we have gnosis, we're enlightened on this stuff, you just don't get it. And, and, and as much as we would want to think that rational debate works, since so much of it is working on this sort of emotional and value level that precedes reason at some, some way, you're actually just reconfirming a difference between yourself and the person you're trying to reason with. I, I would leave that to our to modern folks to think about, but yeah, it can backfire. I think it's often called the backfire effect, but I think that the findings about that have been a little bit inconsistent. So it seems to be somewhat context specific. And I don't think at the time we have the best understanding of when that approach works and when it doesn't. So I think, I think more needs to be done with that, but I do think that the assumption, you know, most people assume, Oh, they just need the correct information definitely not yeah, that's going true. to work in, in many cases. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree, uh, Sarah. I think that sometimes approaching this is the, the, the wrong way. I don't think it is our most promising strategy to think about how do I convert someone who has bought into a conspiracy theory for the reasons uh, that we all talked about. It's very difficult to falsify these things. Most likely your conspiracy theorist comes out of that discussion thinking that they actually proved you wrong. Uh, because they're just pulling some other layer and, and going on and on. Uh, I think the more important thing is how can we curb the spread of conspiracy theories? I don't care if some people have crazy beliefs. I care if suddenly lots of people share the same crazy belief because that has social power that can move things. And so I think it is more productive to think about what can we do to spread, to, to limit the spread of conspiracy theories, then what can we do to convert people once they hold a conspiracy theory? I think that's complicated. Uh, we do not really know how to do it. It's uh, the, the, the rational debate is not the way that works. And the numbers are not really such that if you could curb it early, if you could curb the spread early, you would need to worry about it. You really need to worry about it at a societal level once it becomes a general thing. And in that sense, uh, uh, politicians who kind of signal uh, nice feelings for QAnon and so on, which facilitates the spread, are much more problematic than a core believer of QAnon. If you can limit the acceptability of endorsing it, of repeating it, of signaling some tolerance for it, uh, you know, I mean, that's good patriots, you know, that's all I know. I mean, that's Trump's line. Uh, if you can limit those things, I think that's probably more effective than hoping that you can convert a true believer. I have thought of the Fauci response, quizzical amusement. Well, uh, <laughs> that, that perhaps the quizzical amusement is a great place for us uh, to end our discussion today. Uh, the title of our, our panel was comparing the politics and history of conspiracy theories from the Middle Ages to the modern. I think we did that. I thank you all very much for your, your time and insights today. It was fascinating. What a great uh, conversation. Uh, we appreciate all of your, your support uh, and interest in this topic. To Dallas Denry, Peggy Brown, Sarah Gorman, Norbert Schwartz, uh, thank you so much. We greatly appreciate you. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. 
Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs.